Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the OSINT Bunker podcast. Um, this week it's season five, episode six. Uh, I'm joined by my co-hosts Austin and Technical, and uh, we're rejoined this week by our guest All Source News, uh, who was with us during the last episode. Um, this week um, we've got a fair amount to talk about, so we will crack straight on, I think, with Ukraine. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm gonna steal this from all sources as soon as possible. So sorry, sorry about the the Central America focus for you, but that's get that's getting yeeted out the window today. Um, so so speaking about feints, um, the the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, I I think the last few weeks have probably been the busiest. Um, I think we've seen in the information space. Not a lot has actually happened practically in like the real world um whereas between russian mill bloggers ukrainian mill bloggers and you know the twitter sphere as a whole i think you know how many counteroffenses been have been started on twitter in the past like three weeks we're up to like five or six maybe um between between you know positioning and clearing activities around bakhmut with you know the azov battalion and third assault Bata- brigade and various groups kind of cleaning up, you know, the approaches into Bakhmut to to sort of stabilize the front there, um, and the 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 incursion into Belgorod, um, which was definitely done by Russian partisans with no Ukrainian interference whatsoever. Um, they 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 got those Humvees and uh, MRAPs from from Russian stocks. <laughs> they they definitely they definitely got them from inside of Russia. Um, and of course, other sort of frontal areas, and and I I couldn't you know I I would be extremely remiss if I didn't mention Ukrainian sort of online information preparation um, operations uh, where they're where they're kind of you know teeing up an offensive. I mean Zulani and and other sort of large you know profiles, whether that be on Twitter or actually in real life. Um, have sort of been pushing the narrative, you know, we're going to retake it any day. You know, the counteroffensive could start at any minute. And, and you know, that that is causing a lot of discontent and, um, how do I put it, panic among uh, certain people in the information space, especially Russians. Um, Russian mill blogger accounts, frankly, you know, have probably started 15 or 20 fake counteroffensives in the past few weeks as well um you know any slight ukrainian advance in any area kind of has been taken a bit out of context and and you know there's there's a bit of panic I, and i think that leads me into sort of an open question for a group for the group but how how chaotic do you think the russian information space is going to be between the mill bloggers you know at wagner and you know everyone else how how chaotic is that environment going to be once the actual ukrainian counteroffensive starts well, I think that's an interesting point, Google, because, I mean, if you look at Russian Telegram right now and, and across and all the sources, I mean, it's it's to your point. I mean, it is a mass confusion and panic. Like, they don't have a clear understanding of what's kind of going on on the ground. And and, and let's tie it to Belgorod, right? Like that offensive caught a lot of people off guard, right? There's these raids that occurred. And, and and it was and it's pretty shocking because even the Russians clearly don't even have an own understanding of their military position. So I think when a counteroffensive occurs, Right. And, and we don't know exactly when it's going to happen. And I think this constant uh, beating of the drums by the Ukrainians saying, oh, it's going to happen anytime, or oh, it happened here or there. I think it just feeds into that information warfare of just con- con- 
causing mass confusion. We have seen the Russians just not have good situational awareness of what happens in the war, but this isn't new. I, mean, I think we can all look at Kiev, we can look at Kharkiv, we can look at Kherson, and, and a constant theme is from a command and control piece and the Russian military is very atrocious. It's not at the level where we all thought it would be for a modern 21st century military that has invested so heavily, especially on these, you know, this technological advancement. So their command and control is atrocious. And then just the situation and their ability to push messaging and understanding across the Russian information sphere is terrible. And it's almost ironic that when you track Russian media telegram, you know, they are they are much more pessimistic and much more confused than, let's say, Western supporters of Russia. Right. It's almost like the Western supporters of Russia, those in the West, like your Scott Ritters, your Kim.com, et cetera are very, like, they've towed the line of Russian state media, right? But then when you go to the Russian side, it's just mass confusion to the point where even on Telegram, we see Russian military guys go on Telegram and send information there because they have no way else of conveying any sorts of information throughout the, the force. And it's going to be a, a very bad thing for Russia when the counteroffensive happens uh, because it's just going to get worse and worse and worse for them. And I think that's a huge detriment to them. Yeah, and I, I think it's funny to see how kind of almost little control the the sort of central Russian state apparatus has over a lot of these mill bloggers, um, where you'll just kind of see them either wandering around eastern Ukraine, you know, getting involved, basically, you know, going to units and then reporting and causing massive, you know, OPSEC issues, which like, very funny. I think we saw an incident last week where a Ukrainian HIMARS strike hit a Russian um, installation. Um, Russian mill bloggers posted pictures very soon after the strike and, and you know, tweeted about it or, or, or posted on Telegram about it. Um, and, you know, 20, 30 minutes later, the Ukrainians hit it again because, you know, they, they weren't happy enough with the first strike um, because they got immediate BDA on, on the actual results of the strike. Um, and so I, I don't even think that's like a propaganda thing. That's that's more of a sign of the Russian government just not having control over over their 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 mill bloggers or, or their, their online environment. Yeah. And look, like, let's look at 2016. Right. The, the U.S. presidential election, how everybody was like, look at Russian propaganda. Right. Brexit is another perfect example. Right. Like they, like this ability that we had, this idea that we had of Russia's just almost absolute dominance in their information warfare, right? I mean, their whole aspect of hybrid warfare, the Drozimov, you know, the doctrine that he famously wrote, really touched upon this 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 issue of specifically the information warfare, which is gaining traction in, in the 21st century, you know, military. And you look at the U.S. military, how they're changing their doctrine. It's always about information, information. That's the huge push now. And so you, we had this idea of Russia pre the invasion of Ukraine in 2022 to now. And it's just completely opposite. I mean, they have completely lost, for most part, the information space. And, and, and I think the military bloggers is an excellent point. But at the same time, a lot of times the most accurate depictions we get of Russia's military comes from military bloggers. I believe this was a couple of weeks ago. You know, before Bakhmut fell, we, 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 I think we all read that long post from a military blogger, you know, when, when the 3rd Brigade in, in Alos launched that offensive, I think, in south of Bakhmut, right, where there was kind of this change between Wagner and I believe it was, a, you know, a Russian military unit. I can't remember the top of my head which one it was. 
And they laid out, though, that military blogger laid out the issue that basically there is no trust within any any of the units. There is no communications within these units, Russia, Wagner, the DPR, the LPR. They all have basically separate chains of information, separate channels to convey vital information. And then the, the lack of ability to crosstalk between those organizations just degrades more in command and control, which also ties into this idea of defensive operations during a Ukrainian counteroffensive. If you have zero ability to effectively communicate across the formations in a, in a, in a decisive battle, I mean, command and control is, is probably safe to assume can completely break down. And we've seen what happens in Russia when command and control just breaks down. You know, it just does not ends well. But our only source of probably legitimate information we're going to get on the Russians, ironically, is going to be these mill bloggers who somehow the Russian state has had zero ability to seriously clamp down on. Yeah. Um, and and the ramifications of that, as you said, I think are we're still learning. Um, to, to be honest, at the end of the day, we're, we're really trying to figure out what is happening in the information space and how badly the, uh, the Russians are actually kind of screwing it up, for, for lack of a better term. Um, but I, I, I think the main thing that kind of happens in the information space there is how quick to panic they are. Um, is it's not just a leak of information, is it's not just a lack of control over the information space, but it is it is sort of this this uh, this hive mind in a way. It's really interesting to see because, you know, when it comes to at least offensive disinformation ops, the Russians are kind of chronically online in a way, um, at least the Russian state, you know, intelligence apparatus. Um, and I think you could say during Ukraine, they the sort of the the general Russian defense apparatus is also chronically online um, in that they display the worst traits of being like chronically on Twitter, which is, you know, disinformation, misinformation, generic panic um, uh, and, and a variety of other sort of hive mind. You know, it's it's the Twitter hive mind. It's 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 this horrifying thing. Um, and I think that that is kind of a characteristic of how Russia has been at least for the past 10 or 15 years now, um, at least in the online space in that, you know, they'll, they'll make these online cyber offensives. Um, but also there's, there's a huge downside of that in that it can kind of, you know, come around and, Oh no, now all the, the morons are online and they've, you know, have huge followings and they're causing panic. Well, and I would also say the problem with, you know, consistent coordinated cyber offensives is you start to set expectations amongst those who are perhaps on your side but aren't being either directly supported or funded by you so in the, and I, that's a major reason why i think we're seeing a, a major difference between um sort of organic russian telegram like mill bloggers and all that and some of the folks in the west who you know generally will tow the line of the russian state when you're just towing the line of the state all you need to do is wait for the latest thing that they say put it back out there, maybe put your own spin on it, bing, bang, boom, you're good. But if you're someone who's sort of been organically driven to support this, and you're, you're coming up with your own ideas, and you have all of these expectations in your head, like a great example is sort of, you know, on the Russian information space, it's been all about Bakhmut for the last, you know, five, six, seven months. Um, and after, you know, the information on Bakhmut starts to die down, you start to have some sort of a conclusion there, it becomes what next. And when that what next is arrayed into Belgorod, that throws a lot of these expectations out the window and you're left with a bunch of people who 
organically were supporting you, but are now saying, you know, what the hell is going on? And, and, and I think, but I think technically you hit the, I think the key word is panic. I mean, that is a consistent thing we see. I mean, look at uh, when, when Luhansk was getting hit, right? Those deep strikes that came out to be, you know, the, 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 the you know, the shadow strikes, et cetera. And then before that, even before Bakhmut fell, the counteroffensive where Wagner's chief Pergo- and it's almost like Pergosian is a lead in this panic, right? Because I think he tries to depict things realistically. I mean, there's probably also he has his own interest of of, of highlighting deficiencies and the lack, quote unquote, of support from the R- Russian Ministry of Defense to kind of show like that Wagner is fighting against all odds and still being victorious. But I think once you get a clear understanding of what the ground is and from these and that the fact that they're in the Russian information space, there are people who try to convey some legitimate information and criticism of the Russian military is quick to panic, but can you really blame them? Because how is it that Russia, right, has not been able to decisively had a, a decisive win in Ukraine? I mean, I mean, what can we really look at since February of 2022 and say, without a doubt, no questions asked, here's a decisive Russian win that has altered the situation on the ground. And I think that's what's crazy. And I think that's what's insane. And 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 it, and then a lot of the people in the Russian military bloggers who were sold in this idea of just absolute Russian military power of being the second strongest military in the world, when they see the second strongest military in the world fight so horrendously and so terribly in Ukraine, I think that that image of invincibility shattered. And so these people, I think, who are extremely nationalistic, right, who 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 want nothing more than an absolute win against Ukraine. Are, are left baffled by the fact that they haven't achieved a win. And so the easiest way for them to have an excuse to explain that is the Russian Ministry of Defense and Leadership. And I think Shoigu and Jarosimov are the two key figures that, that they're trying to pin the blame on everything. It is way more widespread than that. But that try to pinning blame then just leads to more and more panic. And I think that panic technical is just going to grow and grow and grow. Yeah, and I do think that comes a lot from, as you mentioned, kind of this invulnerability that was painted before the war of the Russian military. Um, I mean, you know, how long have Russian bloggers or even, you know, stuff like, you know, quote unquote, reputable outlets like Forbes have been talking about, you know, the T-14 Armada, you know, entering service next year and it'll totally defeat the Abrams or the Su-57, the greatest fighter and, you know, the world is going to, you know, it's in service now and it can defeat anything. Um, and I think the Russians have been really good at kind of painting this picture of invulnerability um, for the past, you know, 10, 15 years, maybe, you, you know, ever ever since the, the, the very early Ratnik reforms. Um, these these missions to modernize the Russian military, turn it into this, you know, first world fighting force um, that's the highly professional and, and volunteer based um, and, you know, kind of casting away the the conflicts in Chechnya as, you know, this this bad period that, oh, it never happened, sweeping under the rug, you know, this old technology and stuff. Um, and I they really pushed hard for that, but a lot of it went into appearance. Um, a lot of it was just, you know, embezzled. Um, and another pretty big chunk of it went towards maintaining the nuclear deterrence. Um, and at the end of the day, the Russians really had, it, it was the old Russian military. It was the, it's basically the 1990s Russian military that had a new, you know, coat of paint slapped on it. Um, minor changes made in certain areas. And then they tried to sort of enact their, their new doctrine or at least their their slight doctrinal change you know going to btgs going to you know let's make the thunder run towards kiev and and take it like the the americans did baghdad 
um, when they didn't have a lot of the underlying changes that actually needed to be made to do that. Um, I mean, you can you can go back and look in, into history. I mean, Russia has had an infatuation with being European for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and this kind of connects back to it. They they didn't really utilize their underlying structural advantages that had sort of been generated during the Soviet Union, and they kind of wanted to emulate this this different successful positioning, and and it just didn't work. Um, because again, it's the Russian military. It's it's not the U.S. military. It's it's not you know NATO, um, and that that's kind of probably what's contributed some to their underlying, you know, lack of success. Also, massive intelligence failures and your your standard, you know, palace disconnect from the real situation. Um, but I, I do really think this is this long-term kind of both internally motivated information gap um, and one that was aimed at an external audience as well. Um, and that's kind of just come to a head during the war. And there is nothing like a conflict to really, really get through and cut through the bullshit that you've been putting out. Um, it will, it will really, that is, that is the true measure of what you're actually able to do. You know, there, there weren't SU-57s patrolling over Ukraine, you know, doing combat air patrol. Um, no, they were, they were held back because, you know, the SU-57 actually isn't stealthy and, and is, you know, there's a potential risk to it from, you know, older S-300s that the Ukrainians had. Um, and, and now you have Ukrainian patriots that can actually reach out and, and hit, you know, SC-35s and SC-34s and, you know, low-flying helicopters over Russian territory. Um, and, and I really do think that that is, that is a huge element of, of what's actually happening. And, and, and you, you know, you bring up a good point about the Russian military now, and there, there's this book, and I, I said this multiple times, and I'll just say it here in the podcast. There's this amazing book that, by Kenneth Pollock called Armies of Sands. And the book's premise ties of, like, deficiencies of the Arab militaries, right? Like, why is it that Arab militaries just cannot perform effectively as a modern military force? And, and this was published, obviously, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But it, it's very similar to kind of, like, the deficiencies that, we ident that he identified with Arab militaries. You can draw a direct correlation with the Russian military, right? And one of the arguments that kind of public was saying is that you cannot measure corruption as a, you know, as a, one of the main, not even just one of the, the, you know, the sole factor, but a main factor of deficiencies in modern militaries, right? Because he lays out examples of why that's not the case. And I think a, a, a very in-depth analysis needs to be done at, at, at the Russian military, right, to understand failures, because I think it's much more in, uh, engraved than just corruption. I mean, there's, there's a fundamental, and, and what Kenneth Pollock mentioned in the Arab military is their deficiency was kind of because of cultural reasons, right? That there was this huge problem in Arab culture that makes it difficult for them to fight kind of this 21st century warfare, right? And I'm, I'm just quickly summarizing his conclusions. But you can almost look at that and, and, and look at the Russian military and see everything where they failed fighting against Ukraine and almost tie in a direct correlation to that, right? And, and I think that I think a lot of people after this are going to do in-depth studies. There's going to be amazing research on this. And there's going to be a serious realization that what happened in the Russian military in the invasion of Ukraine is much more severe than just corruption. I mean, this is an absolute failure of what everybody anticipated the 21st century mil Russian military was going to be. And it's almost ironic that a lot of the mistakes they did in Chechnya and then more importantly in 2008 in their invasion against Georgia they, not only did they experience it in Ukraine, but at magnitudes of worse levels because of the scale in the invasion. 
right? And I think a lot of us are going to have to like really look into this. And then, you know, I think there's an important aspect of how not only Western military fight, but I think specifically, I think the U.S., where we all view the U.S. as the preeminent military power in the world, that there's something very unique about Western military doctrine that enables utilization of successful combat operations in the 21st century that we just, and it's not just technology. You can't just look at technology because I can easily make the argument that I can get, you know, uh, uh, in the United States, the National Training Center, NTC. And I think that 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 lack of emphasis on the person in the Russian military and in the command structure and in the soldiers and that individual to collective training is probably a key facet in which the Russians hope to make up for that deficiency with, as you said, technical, the T-14s, the Sukhoi-57s. I think, Austin, and by, by all means, carry on this conversation. because It's like what you said, it's like the Germans and the wonder weapon, right? Like there's one weapon that's going to turn the tide of the war and it's going to be the victory. And that's what the Russians consistently sell. Then you see it now with their nuclear weapons and their hypersonic missiles and all this. It's like, this is our wonder weapon. And this is going to be the this is going to be the key to victory. But we've seen is that weapons don't win wars. It's still people. It's still in human nature. It's still a human fight. See, I don't think it's just that because there's and I I know Fukuyama follows me, which means there's a non-zero zero chance that he's listened to podcasts at some point. So if he does, you know, I'd, I'd probably make him die inside a bit. But you know, it's it's this 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 concept of of the fact that you know non democracies have inherent issues and going back to the you know middle eastern armies is you know a lot of the deficiencies that they suffer is the fact that it is not a meritocracy by any means um there are there are inherent deep issues um that they can't overcome because of their non-democratically placed um you know systems there there are problems with how they do things that that just absolutely destroy their capabilities and ability to actually hold leaders responsible and properly prepare for events that may possibly be negative and you know properly allocate resources as well and and you know we see this a lot you know again across the middle east in russia and other places with this this sort of this non-democratic approach to to, to actual not just resource allocation but people allocation um and again that's that's a huge problem with russia that's a that's a deep ingrained problem that that they deal with um and that they've dealt with for a while now i would i would tack on to that and i would say not only do we see this issue in autocracies we see this issue in democracies that lack legitimacy or feel like they need to bolster their sense of legitimacy and i think a really good example of that is looking at the iraqi army post um occupation uh, and the lead up to sort of the conflict with ISIS, where you had many sort of major commanders being placed there for political reasons. And as a result of that, some of the initial skirmishes between ISIS and the Iraqi army went quite poorly for the the Iraqis there. Um, I just think in general, when a state is reliant upon the military to continue its legitimacy, um, and it's either a young state or a state that's recently gone through regime change, or it's autocratic, then you do have this sort of natural trend towards placing people in positions not based upon merit, but based upon what they can support, do to support either the leader in the case of an autocracy or the state itself in the case of a democracy that lacks legitimacy. But I think more towards um, all sources point in regards to how did the Russian military get here? Uh, I think on top of corruption, on top of complacency, from a, a tactical or strategic level, you know, the Russian state hasn't really needed to um, fully commit its military to a conflict since 
I would say maybe you can make the argument for Chechnya. Maybe you can make the argument for Afghanistan uh, back during the Soviet days. Uh, so some of these larger issues were there were hints towards them in Georgia. There were hints towards them in, in Transnistria. But what's clear is that the Russian strategy was never expecting to um, go up against as determined or as large of a foe as what we've seen the Ukrainian military become. And, and, you know, it's funny you, you say that, because I think if you look at the U.S. a historical example, that I think people forget is that in the Vietnam War, people forget how, you know, how it transformed completely how the U.S. military operates and fight because of the Vietnam War. Specifically, if you look at the army, you know, there was changes in U.S. military doctrine in, in, in general, just both at the joint level and the army level. So you had the air land concept, right, of the integration of and in land uh, warfare. You had the establishment of the U.S. training command. Uh, and, and, and a lot of these focus and then a modernization, et cetera, is what then because of the failure of Vietnam, the 80s, then we saw this, you know, modernization, reampment, et cetera. And then more importantly, the focus on training so that in the 1991 Persian Gulf War, the U.S. was in an infinitely better place to fight. Right. And, and you know, a lot of the people I know were veterans of the first Gulf War. And they, it's funny because they tell us, you know, hey, when we when we were in the army and we were sent as part of Operation Desert Shield in the 90s. And we were going to invade Iraq. The, the casualty estimate, they said, was going to be 10, 20,000 U.S. soldiers killed. And they said that was acceptable back then. Like that was an acceptable casualty rate for the U.S. military. And because if you look at it, like Saddam Hussein had one of the largest militaries in the world, had a very sophisticated, robust air defense system. You know, they, they had an air force. They had an army. And although after the eight year when they ran the Iraq war, they, they were still they just fought a war compared to the United States that fought a completely different war in Vietnam. Right. But the lessons learned of Vietnam enabled the United States to have an absolute dominance in Iraq that it wasn't even remotely close. And I think technically to your point, I think that the ability to adjust to lessons learned enable militaries to be more successful in future warfare. And we've seen the Russian military not do that since the collapse of the Soviet Union. They, the, again, the mistakes in Chechnya and the Georgian War are still plain. And then. Still, by the way, now a lot of the mistakes that although the Russian military, I think, have acknowledged and the general staff has acknowledged that they're not a, they don't they're not able to do these deep strike operations that's kind of in the Soviet doctrine. And they didn't have the manpower to effectively did that because they, they thought that Ukraine was going to collapse. So they did make some adjustments to their strategy overall. But the huge deficiencies across multiple areas of the Russian military are still plain to see to this day. And I think it goes to your point in this autocracies, they just do not accept lessons learned that changes how they fight or how they train to be successful in future operations. Something, something, something history is over. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I again, I, I I really do think it is one of those complex issues that's. And again, it's why the Russians probably haven't solved it, because, again, it's a complex issue that you can't, you know, that it, you're an autocracy. There will be corruption that comes with that autocracy. You know, what, how do you get out of that? Well, you stop being an autocracy, but then we have to stop being an autocracy. And, and you know, I, I think those long-term reforms, you know, when before Ukraine, they could just paint over it with, again, programs like Ratnik and, you know, putting the SU-57, quote-unquote, into service. Um but now that they're in Ukraine, they actually have to face a country that is really fighting, made, you know, a number of reforms post-2014. Um, and I think sort of now we're seeing the ramifications of that. Um, 
the ramifications of the moment have mainly been conscription, which which is is one of the 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 not great routes to go down, you know, for an autocracy because you're you're starting to mess with the people and and you know the willingness of the people to deal with you. Um, but I I I think that the longer this goes on, you know, they're they're going to have to make significant decisions about how they're actually running the war. Yeah, I'd, I'd entirely agree. And I'd also just, you know, on the history ends part, um, when we look at chances for the Russian military or the Soviet military to make reforms, it just, you know, the simple history and the fall of the Soviet Union really was not conducive for making the sorts of changes and reforms that we saw out of the U.S. after Vietnam and then again after Grenada. Um, I, I think just naturally having a stable democracy is far more conducive for long-term um, military reform than going from, you know, a communist state to a, I don't know what you would call a Russia today, an oligarchic capitalistic autocracy. Um, but I mean, yeah, there, there never really was much of an opportunity post-Afghanistan uh, for reform within the Soviet military. And then again, with you know the rampant corruption running through the new Russian Federation in Chechnya, there wasn't much appetite, drive, nor um, effort given towards reforms at post-Grozny. And so, again, we're seeing the long-term ramifications of that. Yeah, and I mean, no one ever wins in Afghanistan, let's be honest. It's, it's kind of the historical context, or the, the historical constant. Um, though I think some countries learn from whatever they fail in within Afghanistan, um, though who knows if those lessons will ever be taken to heart. Um, but I, I do think, you know, in the long run, Russia has just been unable to to properly put together reforms. Um, and and they saw that the day they invaded Ukraine, you know, <laughs> from from literally our number one, things went south for them like it. <laughs> It, it 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 legitimately the second they actually had to touch Ukrainian contact, just things went south, um, and and that is kind of kind of that constant. To which I would say I think that a nice sort of follow up question here for discussion is, today we're looking at a a very different Russian military than what we were looking at you know even a year ago. Uh, we're looking at a Russian military that has relatively more manpower in the field, but at a far less experience level. And now we're potentially looking at a Russian military that may be conducting almost entirely defensive operations. So there's there's quite a few sort of um, known unknowns with how how strong slash or weak is, you know, Russian military morale and some of these mobilized units who if they're on maybe the Kharkiv front, they haven't seen a ton of action in the last uh, six months. If they're on other fronts, they've probably been doing a lot of digging. Um, how does that sort of match up to the large amount of information that we have seen from the Ukrainians at the very least on some of these units coming back from NATO countries, they're coming back from training, they're coming back with new equipment, they seem to be in relatively to extremely high spirits. At what level do we see either the panic that we've seen from the Russian info space really start to take hold within Russian military formations, or do, do they, you know, tend to hold their lines? So it's first awesome. I think let's can we just highlight how crazy a statement that is actually, I think, for the most part, too, that you just made. 
that the Russian military is probably not capable of launching offensive operations. I mean, I think I, I, I just I think that's a huge thing. Like, that's insane to suggest that after just over a year of warfare that the Russians have done, their military capability to launch further offensive operations into Ukraine has basically been destroyed. Right. And so I think that this idea that they have any offensive capability uh, in the European theater, like if you're a UCOM commander, an official, and I know the UCOM, one of the UCOM commanders, you know, mentioned like, oh, you know, Russia's still a threat. And obviously he's going to say that. But like, I think if you're Poland right now, you're like, OK, we're good. Like we're, we're set. But we, we, this is probably the weakest the Russian military has been in, in, since the fall of the Soviet Union. We're pretty much secure at this aspect. Right. But I think Austin, what, let's let's compare both sides in, in Russia and in Ukraine. Right. So both. Both countries did mass mobilizations, Russia later, right? So both militaries are, for the most part, now conscription-based. And they both had issues. I mean, we've seen reports of uh, Ukrainians quickly mobilized and sent to Bakhmut with minimal training and the issues that that, that had in Bakhmut. But the irony is that even in those situations, we, we haven't seen, although there was incidents of units pulling out of Bakhmut when they probably shouldn't have to or, or without, you know, there was disorganization, it didn't lead to a broad collapse, it, let alone in the Donbass, but more importantly in Bakhmut, right? And I think that... That's a testament to Ukrainians' morale and ability to continue to fight. And although there's a lot of issues and a lot of the people we talk to, they, they, they highlight those. But it, I think it does show a, a measure of reassurance of the Ukrainians' ability to, to maintain broad sector throughout a large sector of their defensive force and ability to defend against Russian offensive operations. And, and, and again, you know, you also see tens of thousands of Ukrainians have been trained in the West, in Europe, in the United States, et cetera, right? And, and, and I think that's a model that we've seen, that the Ukrainians had had a large segment of their military in Europe being trained during the Russian winter offensive. You compare that to the Russian side, right? When they did their mass mobilization, there was minimal training. I mean, I mean one of the things across the board is that, for the most part, most mobilized persons did not receive significant amount of training, and they were quickly sent to the front. And a lot of these people that were sent to the front, let's say they were slated to be a radio operator, were just given a rifle and said, you're now an infantryman, you're going on offensive operations, right? And I well, think so, more, more start digging yeah. ditches. Uh, yeah. Yeah, or whatever it may be, right? And so they're not, they weren't trained and they weren't even utilized how they were supposed to be fighting, right? And so that goes into the kind of these, the, the issue when we're analyzing militaries, you can analyze it with tangible effects, like, okay, amount of equipment, what equipment they have, the amount of personnel, maybe even the training that they received. But then there's also these intangibles that are very hard to measure, but can almost be decisive in any military operations. And one of them obviously is morale, but even mission command and how they treat soldiers and how they're utilized in a fight. And, and I think that's the huge problem of the Russian military that they're running into right now is that they, they just simply are not an effective fighting force. And, and more importantly, it, it's almost as if the Russians that are fighting in Ukraine, either being from the Russian MOD, you know, the DPR, LPR and Wagner and other private military corporations that are fighting there. There's there's not this unified of command. There's not this this one. Everybody would say, you know, Gerasimov is, you know, as the senior commander, he should be the one calling the shots and all the information freely goes there and then he's able to understand the battlefield clearly effectively and then make decisions as such we we all know that it's not happening right and so the the ability of not only the soldier but the staff at both the ukraine and the russian military i think there's a huge dichotomy and a huge difference between both right and it and it and it, and it does provide this sense that the ukrainian military has the upper hand um I, I, it's hard to, you know, I've said this in the last podcast with, you know, with you, Austin and, and John, that 
we are very much have to, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic of Ukrainians. We just haven't seen Ukraine launch an offensive, what, what it looks like of this magnitude. And, and to be fair, we haven't seen these types of offensive operations since the initial push of the Russians into Ukraine, which we all know the Russians had an issue. So now the question is, how are you, the Ukrainians are going to do it? How are they going to fight? And although what we've seen so far historically has given us reasons to be optimistic, we just don't know how the Russians in a situation like this, where they're facing a massive force, do they have the morale to fight on, right? Are we going to see an example of the Ukrainians fight in the beginning of the war where they just fought no matter what? Or is the Russian military going to end up like the Afghan you know, government's military forces during the push from the Taliban in 2021, where they just collapsed quickly? And I think you can look and say that it can go either way. But a lot of these, as I said earlier, untangible measurements that is hard to really quantify, I think that's going to be a key factor that determines how the Russian military is going to fight. And we probably won't actually see it until the offensive happens and we start getting reports, specifically from Russian military bloggers stating, hey, this is what's going on. Yeah, and and I think you bring up an interesting question as more more longer term, you know, results if the Russian lines do collapse during a potential Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, yeah, I I I can only guess at what the long term implications of that would actually be. Um, I I mean, there there are a lot of potentials there. I suppose one question our viewers will have now is, um, you know, how far off are we from the proper Ukrainian offensive? Um, we've obviously seen today that the chief of staff of the Ukrainian military has released that video, um, which I think is intended as a recruitment video. But for those of you who haven't watched it, I have retweeted it. It's um, it, it's a hell of a watch, really. Um, very, very well sort of filmed and, and you know very very good for propaganda purposes um but how far off do we think guys how far off do we think we are now really from the offensive launching bearing in mind how much western equipment has now been supplied to ukraine and you know the 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 ongoing discussion that ukraine's been saying for a little while now that they are getting ready to make that counter-offensive so I think the the it was a, a, like a senior advisor. I can't remember specifically what, but from like the Ukrainian president or their, or their kind of equivalent to their Ministry of Defense, said it could be today, tomorrow, or next week. Right? They're not putting a specific date, but you know, I guess there's this whole sentiment that's imminent. But I think uh, uh, Defense Group's point. It, it, I think it's going to be determined on the ground, right? So when you generally at the tactical level analyze military operations in the U.S. military, we, we use what's called METTC. It's an acronym, and it stands for Mission Enemy Terrain time troops available and civil considerations and now with you know the 20 you know with multi-domain operations this new army doctrine now they've added information to that acronym and and i think what you look at when you look at all that right let's say okay well we kind of understand what the mission is from the ukrainians right so the mission basically to take kick russia out of much territory as possible maybe the you know the enemy okay you know here us in these open source we might not have clear understanding or an exact nature of russia's military but is the area where they're going to launch a counteroffensive are they at a stronger strength are they better equipped maybe these are units that are better trained more of the kind of the traditional vdv etc that that generally perform better 
uh, or are these just recent recruits that have no idea what they're doing, right? And I think that's where the Ukrainian, when they're analyzing the enemy, they might make a determination based on that as well. Hey, do we do need to do more deep strike, more strikes in the front line, weaken them so they're doing the offensive? Uh, if you look at troops and equipment, I think, to your point, I think that's fairly, a lot has the Ukrainians have already received. I think these guys have been doing an extensive amount of training for months, and the equipment, it looks like a significant portion of the equipment necessary for this counteroffensive is there. So I think in that aspect, okay, we're good. And then so the other two, you know, kind of terrain and weather, you know, that depends on the situation on the ground. Are we expecting rain? And, you know, obviously that is a problem for mud season in Ukraine. We've all seen that. So maybe the Ukraine's like, oh, you know, we're expecting rain next week. Maybe we need to hold off because we don't want to be bogged down by mud. And we wanted that speed and, and our ability to push and continue to push as hard as possible, not to be interrupted because of weather. And that can delay an offensive operations for legitimate reasons. And it says nothing with the Ukrainian's military capability. It's just a fact of the ground, right? And then there's also civil considerations, right? Like, where are this offensive are going? Like, how many Ukrainian citizens and civilians are still there? Because from the Ukrainian government standpoint, these are still Ukrainians that are under illegal occupation, and we need to take care of them and make sure they're good, right? And so when you analyze uh, these types of military operations from those metrics, right, it, it makes it very uh, fluid when a decision to launch happens. And I think a good historical example is D-Day, right, when everybody was waiting on that weather report. I mean, we've all studied history, all knew it. And based on the weathers, when they were going to launch an offensive, and it was either going to be January 5th, 6th, or I think later, a couple of weeks later, I think it was like June 5th, June 6th, and then June, uh, what, 20th, I believe it was, right, for, for D-Day. So I think a lot of these variables are very well known by the Ukrainian military. I think from at least a troop and equipment standpoint, it feels like they're very confident that they have it. So now they just have to look at everything else and find the right moment to strike and but I think the, the important conversation that we should be having is, do they have the capabilities to do this? Are the Ukrainians trained to do this? And I think that I think we can all probably assume that there are at that level. So everything else, well, it just depends on all these unknowns and some of them outside of the control of the Ukrainian military to make that final decision when to launch offensive operations. Yeah, and I think anyone who says they, they empirically know the date, either um and honestly at this point as you said i don't even think the ukrainians have a hard set date right now just because it it depends on so many factors that they they want to get they want to have the assets in position to actually go forward and make the offensive they don't necessarily have a hard set date to do that because again they're watching weather conditions they're watching you know russian emplacements they're watching russian strategy they're watching what the russians are doing as a whole um so so i i i do think that is still a fluid date in the near future i think it's going to happen i think we i think we could all fairly assume and it's almost a certainty it's going to happen but to technical point yeah so many variables so the exact date we you know it'll, it'll probably happen probably maybe maybe even the ukrainians only know they're going to make a decision they have 24 hours to, to start right i mean that's the difficulty when you're running in these types of situations but i think the key point is it's going to happen they have a substantial amount of forces available for this and that is very worrisome if you're a Russian you know, military officer, soldier, general. I, I would be panicking right now because of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I know what the mail bloggers are doing. They're, they're, uh, they're definitely not having a fun time right now. Um, though granted, the attention that they're getting is also probably something they like anyway. So, you know, 50-50 on that one.
Yeah, I think you two uh, summed it up better than better than I. The only thing I would say is it's it's near term. It's going to happen near term. But beyond that, looking at specifics, as I think you guys kind of laid out, uh, there really isn't any major indicators to um, narrow that down to a specific date or even like a specific week, I would say. Um, so, yeah, the indicators are there that it's going to happen. It's just a question of when. Yeah. I, I I find it funny. Someone someone is recommending on Twitter right now a uh, a UN NATO backed intervention to uh, hold the uh, Zephyrisa uh, nuclear power plant. Ah <laughs> uh, man, Twitter is great sometimes. That's 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 the counteroffensive we all want to see, right? It's been a while since we had a large scale UN intervention. We're due. Oh yeah. Just drop drop paratroopers on the Russians. It's a great idea. Just blue helmets from whichever uh, contributing country wants to do that. Uh, and and I think on 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 that note, we should probably switch over. Um, what else? What else did we want to hit on today? I think there was mention, wasn't there, of um, sort of the situation in Israel, um, which kind of unfolded not long after we recorded. Oh. Lord, I'm sorry. My brain is fried to a point where something happened more than two weeks ago. I don't even remember it. The problem um, with Twitter is where, like, I feel like a, a, something that pops and you tweet and it happened a couple hours ago, that's old news, and you just completely forget. Yeah, I, I know there there was a series of rocket attacks, I think, three weeks ago now. Um let me let me let me check to when the bulk of them were. Um, no, so a bit over two all, weeks ago. Yeah, a bit over two yeah. weeks ago. Now. Um, yeah, it all started because Israel launched that uh, targeted assassination campaign against senior commanders, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad commanders in Gaza. Uh, the Israelis were claiming, you know, they were planning imminent terrorist attacks in, in Israel. So, the, so the Israelis then launched uh, assassination campaigns, targeted attacks against these senior commanders. And, and and actually, most of the Israeli-Gaza, you know, conflict that we saw this last iteration is, you know, the Israelis did target a lot of, probably more than usual, senior Palestinian Islamic Jihad commanders a lot more, and and had a lot of success. You know, I I think this was mostly, unless anybody here has any different information, but from what, mostly what I've tracked is that this was Israeli against PIG, the PIG, and and then kind of Ham, uh, Hamas you know, kind of did not get actively involved in this round. And that probably uh, allowed this round of conflict to end sooner than than one would have, because I think if, if Hamas would have gotten, you know, more involved, you know, this it, this conflict would probably have lasted a lot longer and have been a lot more intense than what we've seen right now. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things that we saw was a few more rockets getting through the Iron Dome. Um, but that was probably due to mast attacks more than anything. Um, I, I think that, you know, nothing, these systems obviously are highly complex at, at, at minimum. Um, and, and again, I mean, if you shoot hundreds and hundreds of rockets against a system like that, some are going to get through. Um, and so we did see some various impacts across, I think, Southern and South Central, uh, Israel proper, um, from the rocket attacks. And it's it, it always strikes me with these situations that 
the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and, and, and their similar groups fire so many of these rockets. And as you say, some of them obviously do get through and, and the Israelis have made it very clear that they don't launch interceptors against the rockets they know are going to land in open fields and so on. But it, it strikes me that we haven't so far seen Israel sort of run out of interceptors or, or at the very least, if they've come close to it, there's been no sort of indication of that. Um, I think, you know, c comparing with sort of the situation with air defences over Kiev recently, we, we've we've seen a lot of people pointing out, oh, you know, there's hundreds of these sort of air defence rockets being launched. And I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to know sort of what Israel's production capacity is for the Iron Dome and whether or not they have come close to sort of running out of interceptors during sort of these skirmishes that we've seen over the last couple of years, um, and particularly this one the other week. Um, whereas you say, that I think the, the, the eventual figure was something like over a thousand um, rockets were fired at Israel during that incident. Um, and that's, you know, if, if you think about that in terms of just surface-to-air missiles and so on, traditionally, that is a huge amount of sort of targets to, to, to try and engage. Um, obviously, Iron Dome has the benefit of being not sort of a, a, a traditional surface-to-air missile as such. And as a result, you know, there are more of them and, and they can be produced more easily, I would imagine. But I'd be intrigued to know sort of where the, the situation lies in terms of how how much capacity Israel's really got for dealing with these sort of barrages that last for days on end yeah i mean there's there's it i mean there are capabilities on both sides of the thing on on both sides of the situation personally i wouldn't lose too much sleep about israeli stockpiles for interceptors i think like when we're comparing it, obviously the numbers are high um in regards to usage but when we look at sort of the defense industrial base of israel in comparison to a country like ukraine um israel you know itself hasn't really seen um targeting of its sort of like domestic military industrial complex it's still extremely well funded it has been for you know the last few decades um and you know since the to my understanding at least since the second really intifada we haven't seen um large scale sort of uh use of equipment by israeli land forces that would sort of test that production base uh most of the the attacks coming from from gaza have been rocket based and so that's uh, there's obviously been a priority placed upon iron dome and placed upon having sufficient stockpiles of interceptors the, is it going to cost the israelis a pretty penny to keep it up yeah uh but they have quite a few pretty pennies left in the purse so i i'm not terribly worried about them running out anytime soon. Any other topics we want to hit on? Um, John, did you have anything in mind specifically? Well, uh, I think we did also just mention at the start um, we were going to discuss. Um... Yeah, I can, I can, I can kind of pro provide a, a brief summary with that. In, in you know, in a, luckily I got Austin here, who's a great, also somebody I coordinate a lot with when we're talking about. Mexico, Central America, and Latin America. So the, the key aspect that we saw, obviously, was the end of uh, what was called Title 42. So Title 42, just a quick summary, was a policy input during the Trump administration during COVID 
And it's a health policy, uh, you know, code that allows the United States to expel and deny entry to anybody crossing into the United States. And so the Trump administration utilized Title 42 to basically, you know, any migrants that cross the border, they could just grab them quickly and then deport them quickly. Right. Uh, uh, there was the, the thing about Title 42 is it did not provide an avenue for the administration or any administration to do legal procedures against anybody crossing the border. Right. Because it was a health code policy, they could they could be deported as many times as necessary, as many times as they want, the U.S. government wanted. But there was no legal tool enforcement measure to hold you know people because of crossing the border, let's say, legally or, or et cetera, like that to be held accountable in a kind of a rule of law in the court of the court. Uh, uh, so the Biden administration, because kind of COVID obviously is done, uh, wanted to go get away from Title 42 and go back to what was Title 8, the historical nature of U.S. immigration enforcement. Um, now, Title 8 has been in, in the laws for over 50 years. It is uh, you talk to any immigration uh, specialist uh, and lawyers, and they would all admit that Title 8 is a very old, outdated code that needs to be updated. Uh, and so the, the Biden administration reverted back to Title Eight, which does allow for criminal penalties against people who might cross the border illegally. It is the tool that the government can utilize if they decide to use so. The, the concern was with Title 42 uh, being revoked that there was going to be kind of this rush into the United States. Uh, there was other policies in place during the Trump and the Biden administration that try to ma- mitigate the amount of migrants crossing into the United States. Uh, but for the most part, we just didn't see a huge rush across the border. There were some areas of concerns, you know, Brownsville specifically, you know, bordering Matamoros and, and, you know, sometimes, you know, in El Paso and some other border communities. But honestly, this wasn't something that w- was out of like this outside of what these communities and these border communities have dealt with in the past, since, especially since 2014 into today. Uh, there was not that. There was not this mass rush. You know, the, you know, a lot of although there was a spike at the beginning. Uh, originally, where people were trying to cross the border, that quickly went down, and, and, and it's on more at, at, at historically normal levels that that the federal government can easily utilize. Uh, so that's kind of the migration uh, aspect of the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, a lot of people are obviously uh, monitoring that, uh, but again, I think the the so the summary is that the, the scare, especially if you look talk to like Republican operatives and GOP politicians, was our borders are being invaded. Look at all, all these migrants. That's you know blatantly false and, and to refer to any migrants as, as invasion, I think is a disservice and, and, and totally inflammatory terms to, to refer to that. Um, and so, but that just didn't happen. We didn't see this match dash that a lot of us were, or a lot of them were fearing. Uh, and then outside of that, I think what happened specifically, if you look at Mexico uh, and along the U.S. and Mexico border, a specific region that's seen a huge level of increase in violence, already higher than they we've seen in the past. Uh, it's a border state called Tamaulipas. Uh, that uh, that Mexican state borders the southeast portion of Texas. And what we saw in Tamaulipas is basically uh, a continuation and an intensification of a civil war within the Gulf Cartel. Uh, so the two main groups that are operating that are part of the Gulf Cartel is the one based out of Matamoros, which borders uh, Brownsville, Texas. They call themselves the Scorpion Group, Grupo Scorpiones. And then in Reynosa, Texas, that borders McAllen, I mean, Reynosa, Tamaulipas, which borders McAllen, Texas. In Reynosa, you have the Metros, the group Cotel Metros faction. Uh, the Metro factions uh, are aligned with CJNG, one of the largest cartels and one of, the, one of the most powerful cartels in Mexico. And it looks like a lot of this violence that we're seeing in Tamaulipas is because CGNG, specifically with their groups that operate there, Metros and old school Zetas, 
that's the other group, uh, tried to make a push at least for more control in Tamaulipas. The Scorpion group, Aramantamoros, said basically, absolutely not. We are going to stop you and we're going to fight you. And so that's kind of what we saw, specifically in the first two weeks of May and the last week of April, we saw a intense level of violence between the Scorpion groups against the old school Zetas, which are aligned with metros and CGNG, and then also the metros. So, so Tamaulipas specifically, that is kind of like where a lot of the violence has happened. And then lately also just uh, a lot of reporting is starting to come out about Los Chapitos, which is our Chapo's son who run the Sinaloa cartel and a lot of the business and trade and fentanyl drug distribution that they have in the United States. I mean, Los Chapitos are a major drug trafficker into the United States and around the world, specifically against fentanyl. So there's been amazing reporting about the, 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 that specific group and El Chapo's son's uh, uh, involvement in the fentanyl drug trade. You know, yeah, I was waiting for Tamalipa's time. And now that it's Tamalipa's time, uh, I would, number one, agree with just about everything Allsource just said there. Uh, first and foremost, in regards to some of the stuff we saw going into the information space about Title 42 and about the, how there's going to be sort of a massive surge of people over the U.S. southern border. Um, Numbers-wise, that did not come to pass. Um, it seemed to be more normal as usual. And I think that's to be expected because... Uh, to be quite honest, when you look at um, a lot of the reasons that people are trying to get into the United States, whether they're seeking to immigrate or uh, they're seeking asylum, uh, generally speaking, they're not really caring about U.S. health policy in the in the process. That's not generally something that goes into the calculus. Um, so it makes a, a ton of sense that we didn't see sort of this massive surge there. Uh, secondarily, there have been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of posts online. There's been some news commentators talking about you know the threat of uh, people on the terror watch list being caught on the U.S. southern border. There has not been a uh, major increase in that either. And I think it's also kind of worth reminding all of our listeners that there has not been, uh, to my knowledge at least, there has not been sort of a single terrorist attack executed in the United States as a result of the southern border of operatives coming over from there. Uh, so I think that remains sort of an issue that federal agencies need to keep an eye on. Um, but as of right now, it has not come to fruition at all. Uh, and secondarily, in regards to what's happening in, you know, across the border in Tamaulipas itself is sort of a tale as old as time when we talk about um, wars between the cartels and how quickly sort of violence in Mexican states can escalate when two cartels are competing for territory. Uh, because there are parts of Mexico that are completely dominated on a, on a local governance scale, on a local economy, economic scale by a single cartel that are relatively, you know, far more peaceful than areas where two cartels are fighting. When there's border friction between cartels and whether that's between major elements of major cartels or from smaller factions like in Tamaulipas, Los Metros, and uh, Grupo de Escorpiones, uh, that's where you start to see violence escalate quite rapidly. Um, and we've seen that happen in Reynosa. We've seen that happen in Matamoros. Um, and... From my standpoint, from what I've seen, and all source, feel free to chime in here, I don't see any indication of that ending anytime soon. It still seems like it's quite an ongoing, um, it's an ongoing turf war, and it's not yeah. going conflict. Yeah, it's, it's still ongoing. Uh, one of those centers where we've seen a lot of conflict is kind of in the southern tip of Tamaulipas. It's called San Fernando. Uh, that, that, that's kind of like the huge border, kind of uh, kind of the border lines between these groups of factions and they're fighting for that specific town uh los grupos scorpiones and then old school zetas 
mainly that's where they've been fighting. And, and yeah, it's it's to Austin's point. I mean, literally, it's when multiple cartels operate in, in in a specific region where we see high levels of violence. I mean, Guanajuato, a Mexican state, is a perfect example where you have a large cartel, the CJNG, fighting a more you know a smaller one, the Santa Rosa de Lima cartel. Uh, but but very high levels of violence and propensity to just kill anybody who might oppose you is generally uh, uh, how these groups operate. I mean, Santa Rosa de Lima Cartel has done a lot of mass shootings uh, against public venues, uh, bars, and we see, you know, 10, 8, 12 people killed in these attacks, uh, specifically because these businesses and bars might be a front or used for money laundering for the CDNG. Um, and so, you know, one important aspect that Austin touched upon that I'd like to expand is that, uh, you know, I think it was like sometime late last year, I believe it was October, the Washington Post had an amazing article and um, and they and they mentioned that or it might have been the New York Times, actually. But they mentioned that 30 to 35 percent based on U.S. military estimates, 30 to 35 percent of Mexican territory is completely ungoverned and controlled absolutely by the cartels. Right. And, and again, when we're talking about the cartels. There, there are dozens of groups. Uh, the two big ones, obviously, are the Sinaloa cartel and CGNG, but these, all these groups had their own factions inside and, and operate internally. The Sinaloa cartel is divided into two main ones, Los Chapitos, which is uh, El Chapo's son, and then Mayo Zambada, which was El Chapo's right-hand man. Uh, those are the two groups that both of them have fought. Now there's basically this uneven truce, calm, and they all try to, try to get along. Um, but I think that's an important aspect when we're talking about it, like, you know, that cartel presence in Mexico, I think it's more than what people realize. And, and it is concerning in the Mexican government, uh, the Mexican president specifically, when he came into office, really ran on this platform of demilitarizing the, the drug war, right, or the cartel war. I mean, he, he tried to remove the military from this fight. And, and we've seen how he completely pivoted. And if anything, he's probably the most militaristic president that Mexico has, specifically since their transition to a multi-party democracy. I mean, the military is heavily involved under the current Mexican president's administration, not only in the fight against the cartels, but in a lot of uh, sectors that are just normal government control that are not affected necessarily by corruption. And he uses the Mexican military just for his own pet projects, for his own political power, or for nationalistic purposes and political purposes. And, and I think that's also extremely concerning. I would absolutely agree. And I would also say that so some of those assessments regarding like how much territory does the Mexican government actually control or have like a monopoly on violence over um, vary. I remember there was a I believe it was a Homeland Security report um, about a year ago, maybe six months ago, that said 45 percent of the country wasn't sort of directly governed um, or able to be uh, without significant sort of um, military involvement. Uh, but I think it's also important mentioning that the cartels aren't just, you know, a physical presence. They are just a, a militarized force, even though they basically are. Uh, they're an economic force. And in many of the areas that they govern, they are able to um, take money out of the local economy, but also put money in through either illicit or completely, you know, normally legal industries, such as agriculture, such as heavy industry. Um, and as a result of that, the Mexican government has really struggled, not just with you know, the Sicarios themselves, but also with, you know, local populaces that are angry when they intervene, because whenever the Mexican military rolls into a town, they're interrupting economic activity and they're interrupting a lot of, you know, the civilian populace's day to day. Um, and if that civilian populace relies upon sort of financial input from the cartels, then it's very hard to, you know, conduct hearts and minds when people aren't making the same amount of money that they used to.
Yeah, and the, the last point I'd say on this uh, for everybody here is... Um, uh, oh, yeah, Nate, you think that's what? the last point you're going to get out? Oh, sorry. Well, really <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I didn't know this was an open... <laughs> I didn't know people were interested by all means, but I did want to highlight in um, May... I believe it's May 12th. It's Mother's Day in Mexico. And as every year, to, to tie to Austin was saying about kind of the soft power, every year during in May 12th, we, we see cartels, you know, hand out presents to mothers. Uh, so that happened again this year. There's multiple videos, multiple, but specifically CJNG. Uh, uh, you you saw videos of them in in one Mexican state, Michoacan, also in Jalisco, another state. Jalisco is basically the the birthplace of the CJNG. Uh, just videos of them handing out presents to mothers and to the communities and saying, you know, hey, from you know our leader uh, Menchel, you know, uh, from CJNG, we wish all mothers a happy uh, you know uh, happy Mother's Day. Here's the presents, and then you just see the mothers all there saying, "Thank you so much, Senor Menchel." You know, we appreciate this, and that just kind of highlights the soft power that the Mexican cartels also have within these local communities. Yeah. So what I was going to say is, speaking about winning hearts and minds. Um, and I, I don't think we touched on this earlier, but there there has been a push um, very, very consistently and broadly from one side of the aisle in the U.S. Um, towards some sort of kinetic intervention against cartel activity in Mexico. And um, I think I just posed this as an open question of how badly would that go? Um, you know, I... I the various pitfalls that would exist there just off the top of my head. But I, I mean, you know, nail it down political other ramifications, but you know, a, a bushfire war on our border, how, how, how would that end up? Yeah. And so it's, it's funny you bring that up technical because uh, I, I am part of a kind of these political spaces where we do have specifically Republican leadership and congressmen and women join. And that's something I really want to now hound in and, and specifically question it because right now, in January of 2023, uh, Congressman Crenshaw proposed uh, to author, you know, utilize the AUMF against Mexican cartels, right? And, and you're right. I mean, this is 100% from GOP conservative side of the House of, of utilizing military force uh, against the Mexican cartels and how much that is genuine and how much is just political posturing because of the issue of the border in general and, then, and this idea that the border is under siege and, and we need to do something and the military is a tool to fight it. Um, so what 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 my philosophy is and my and my policy would be of this is is that you know from a U.S. side and I think when this was asked to the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff General Milley he basically said okay we're not going to do anything in Mexico without Mexicans right I mean and this is a Mexican led fight uh, and so and I think that's kind of the philosophy of, across administration is we 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 always try to do as much as we can but always within the author you know permissions of the Mexican government because they're a sovereign country and we and this is their territory and more importantly we have a lot more interest regarding Mexico than just cartels i mean our economic relations with Mexico they're one of our largest trading partners oh absolutely uh, yeah no yeah. largest actually now yeah yeah so and 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 with you know NAFTA 2.0 NAFTA etc i mean and and our our decoupling with china i mean mexico is just going to get more and more and more important i mean we many businesses are shutting sh shop in china and moving to Mexico, right? I mean, that is the that's going to be the, the conversation in international trade within the next decade as Mexico industrial powerhouse related related to the United States and how and in, if if Mexico was important now, just wait ten years from now, how much more important it's going to be, right? And I think that's that's why we 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 know we need to when we talk about Mexico, we can't just be so heartily consumed by the conversation of the cartels. 
So I think that's kind of the philosophy that I had. Don't do anything without the Mexicans. And 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 look, most U.S. administrations, bipartisan, will always criticize the Mexican government that they can always do more. They can, there's always more that they can do. Um, but in the same time, at the same token, you also have to analyze this from the Mexican government standpoint, right? You have to acknowledge that there is also, you know, they have concerns about not wanting open warfare in Mexican cities, right? Even though there's very high levels of violence now, it could always get worse. Uh, I am not necessarily, I, I said this earlier in, in, right here in this conversation with you guys, and I'll say it again, right? Like Mexican governments tend to utilize the military to fight the cartels because it's, it's really the only tool they have left to fight them. And more importantly, and I was talking to a very legitimate reporter actually yesterday about this, is that the Mexican cartels are becoming militarized, right? We, we see the tactics they utilize are becoming more and more of a militarized force, right? We see them utilize kind of like we see this in Iraq and Syria, these Mad Max vehicles that ISIS have utilized, these kind of crude up armored locally made vehicles. We see that regularly in Mexico all the time. Uh, the utilization of drones uh, to do strikes and reconnaissance, that is also very now common. The weapons cartels have, right? And I think when we're having a conversation with cartels, we kind of imagine this like 80s, 90s narco Mexico and compare them kind of like to this American mafia, right, in the 20s and 30s, where they're just a bunch of gangsters and mobsters, and that's how they operate, and they're all in it for the drugs. But we completely ignore the, the militarization that the cartels have done in the last 10 to 20 years. And yeah, more I, importantly, I think, yeah. I, I think the best way to put it is kind of Taliban with more organization. Yeah, I think that's, a, I think that is a very fair assessment, right? And, and, and the, the cartels are becoming more and more militarized, right? Now, the, the benefit, I would say, at least why the Americans, we don't have a, where we don't need to utilize U.S. military resources for this is that for the cartel's point of view is the Mexican military still is the greatest threat that the cartels have, right? The last thing they want is the Mexican military down their throat because they, they, they know that, that they can't win that fight. Um, but there's always that concern of, of the Mexican military being able to outgun the government. And I think we should not, as a U.S., inflame and pour gasoline in the fire. And I think a unilateral strike or military operations will do minimal to really affect a lot of the cartel's calculus, but can just inflame tensions to make the situation significantly worse without Mexican government approval. I think the comparison of the Taliban, but worse, holds a bit of water. Um, but I would add on to it. And I would say, no, obviously, the cartels are not this like ideological force that the Taliban were there. You know, it's far more of an economic factor, but I think if you want to make the Taliban comparison, you would also say that it in some bizarre world where the United States decides, you know, it's Pancho Villa expedition part two. Um, we'd be looking at it far more resistance from across the board, the civilian populace, uh, far more coordination with, you know, cartel assets um, from them far less of, you know, because it, at least when it came to fighting the Taliban, there was a significant portion of the Afghan population that on an ideological basis disagreed with the Taliban and were willing to help U.S. forces or coalition forces, sorry, uh, carry out missions. In the case of like a, a, a direct physical U.S. intervention, we'd be looking at, you know, large swaths of Mexico that are just like, what, what are you doing here? Like, why are you invading my land? Um, and so I, I think, you know, the conversation about making this a kinetic war from the U.S. against the cartels uh, holds, it's number one, it's the wrong tool for the wrong job. It's like trying to take a sledgehammer to a screw. Uh, it doesn't really, 
It doesn't impact the, the major economic drivers that drive cartel recruitment. It doesn't take into account um, what sort of uh, allows cartels to sustain themselves through like legitimate industry because cartels are so you know, intertwined with legitimate industry at this point. It's not, I know I've some, uh, particularly on the Republican side, you hear talks of, you know, drone striking drug labs and things like that. But if you, if there was an actual kinetic campaign to cut off the cartel's funding, that would mean, you know, bombing cornfields, bombing wheat fields, right? Because, you know, burning down avocado orchards. And at the end of the day, if you, if you scorch earth, an area that you're trying to win hearts and minds, that's oil and water. Yeah. yeah, and and I, then, I, yeah. No, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, when we're talking about cartels, it's not just drugs. I mean, it's more, I mean, we've no cartels to trade on avocados, lime, timber, water, oil, it, extortion of businesses, legitimate businesses. It's so widespread that it's not just drugs. Yeah, it, it is It is the, the entire economic system um, to a degree. And And the last point I'll make is that the threat of further U.S. sort of involvement thus far has mostly, you know, kept cartel violence uh, that's not directly targeted between cartel operatives south of the, the U.S. border. The moment, you know, it goes kinetic, there no longer is sort of that deterrence or that um, reason for cartels not to target, you know, border towns, not to target American civilians in an attempt to sort of uh, wane American morale. So, you know, if, if the U.S. trundles over the southern border, those bets are off. And we I, I would reasonably expect there to be, you know, reprisal attacks on American civilians. Yeah, it, you know, I mean, there there are a lot of. There's there's a lot that would happen there. There is an immense amount of complexity to that situation as a whole, and it, it would not be a simple, you know, one and done, in and out, solve the issue, and you know, there it goes. And and also the other potential ramifications of that could also include um, greater civilian migration as well, um, where you would have people very rightly fleeing a, a, a conflict that that would have been you know even more turbocharged. It would it would be yeah, a destabilizing yeah. event. That's an excellent point. I mean, you think we have a migration crisis now, just cause a war on our southern border, and then let's have that conversation after the fact. Like you were, you're just going to put that in overdrive. And, and a lot of these border communities in the United States, I live in a border community uh, in, in the U.S., which borders Mexico. Um, I mean, it's so intertwined. I mean, these are sister cities that, and, and families are on both sides of the border and freely travel back and forth. Uh, and, and it's a wholeheartedly dependent uh, on that free trade between the borders and ability to do that and just cross. And, and if you shut that down with the war, you're going to have a lot of U.S. border communities and the U.S. economy as a whole suffer significantly. And I just don't think it's in our interest. Number one trading partner. I mean, that's that's pretty starting starting not a war with, but a, but a war in our, our number one trading partner would be a bad idea, I think. Uh, I think that was it. If you if you want to lead us out, John, I'll I'll let you. No worries. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Um, that's it for this week, and um, we shall be back next month. Um, we already have a guest lined up for next month's episode. Um, I won't give away any uh, spoilers yet, but um, it should be. Uh, 
a, a good a good discussion and um all source once again thank you very much mike for joining us it's, it's been a pleasure having you hey thank you so much again for you guys having me especially two months in a row and i, I would consider a success that you know we had a, a managed to have a great discussion and everything but more importantly good to cover i topic uh, to cover a lot is cartels and it was great that it's get here because i think it's a, it's an important issue that should be highlighted and the complexity of it and having a conversation with great minds here uh, is really, really awesome. And I really appreciate the time to, to share that with you guys. And so with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Um, this has been the OSINT Bunker podcast and we will catch you next time. <laughs>